Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes podcast. Earlier this season, we were joined by Katie Gotch and Catherine Gomez, who shared their work on domestic human trafficking. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Casey Brancini about human trafficking, but from an international perspective. We recognize that this topic may be difficult for some of you. Please remember that you can always turn the episode off and listen later, or you can even listen with a friend. My name is Dr. Alyssa Ackerman. And I'm Dr. Alexa Sardina. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Fear. Today, we are joined by Casey Branchini Risco. She is a public health researcher with more than a decade of experience working in the anti trafficking field, both on research and programming. Her work focuses on using rigorous methods to better understand how human trafficking impacts health, including how to accurately measure these issues and conduct monitoring and evaluations of interventions. She has spent much of her career traveling through Southeast Asia and other parts of the world to better understand risks and protective factors associated with trafficking and to find new and innovative ways to prevent and respond to the crime. Dr. Branchini received both her PhD and MHS in international health from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. While at Hopkins, she also served as co-investigator on studies estimating the prevalence of forced marriage and childbearing among Burmese women trafficked to China, as well as on the health impact of human rights violations, including trafficking among North Korean children. So welcome, Casey, to the podcast. Thank you for having me. My sister is actually the co-host of this podcast, Alexis Sardina. And a lot of what happened to her actually piqued my interest in this work. As you know, she's a survivor herself, and that really led me to become interested in gender-based violence and sex crimes. But I also had this itch to travel internationally to learn more about other cultures, and I was studying public health while I was in college. So the summer after college, before I was entering grad school, I actually took a little break and I got an internship at an NGO in D.C. called the Polaris Project. They are one of the preeminent organizations in the U.S., um, one of the first to really start and embark on addressing this in the U.S. It all kind of rolled from there. Um, then I was originally enrolled in an environmental health studies program at the School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins, and I switched into international health to work with a certain professor who was doing work on trafficking. As I became more engaged in the subject, I expanded my work from really focusing on the sex trafficking piece to really looking at labor trafficking as well. And I really also saw the overlap between these two. So I can say that I study both labor and sex trafficking, but I would like to say that I also study 
them as a single entity as well. I didn't know that you didn't were interested in environmental stuff. That's a that's a new learning piece for me today. My my interest in that was really around actually kind of labor issues and exploitation around labor issues, specifically in like mining and things and environmental exposure. Oh, okay. But then I kind of widened my perspective and switched to more focus on migration and trafficking more broadly with a specific focus on the fact that a lot of these, in, these individuals, not a lot, these individuals are um, operate outside of the health system. So really trying to increase their access to care and services. I love that, uh, you know, as we do interviews like this, sometimes we learn little random tidbits that we weren't so, that we just didn't know about. So, so thank you for that, Casey. Um, can you uh, talk a little bit about uh, how prevalent human trafficking is generally and sex trafficking more specifically? Sure. So this is a great question. It's actually something that I focused my career on for near close to a decade now. I actually started working on this as a master's student in 2009. The first prevalence study I did was a small, I think it was like a $25,000 study funded by the UN in Bangkok to look at the trafficking of um, fishermen in the seafood processing in Thailand. And this was really one of the first studies that was looking at this. It was an open competition for, and they funded three people to do uh, different prevalence estimates within the sector. So we looked at fishing, the fishing sector, and another individual looked at sex trafficking, another individual was looking at agriculture. It's funny to we see how far things have come. That was the $25,000. We're currently funding projects for prevalence that are upwards of $5 million because we're really focusing on more of this intervention piece as well. So seeing whether or not there's a reduction in prevalence based on interventions. So in 2005, the International Labor Organization began publishing its global estimates of modern slavery which focused on forced labor and forced marriage. Their most recent estimates were published in 2017, and they update their statistics roughly every five years. So we expect the next report to come out in 2023. And this is largely one of the most commonly cited reports there is on trafficking, on the prevalence of trafficking. So according to their 2017 report, globally, there are approximately 25 million victims of trafficking. Of these, around 64% are exploited for labor, around 20% are sexually exploited, and around 17% were exploited in state-imposed forced labor, which really is a different crime that I know we're not talking about, but just so you understand why that doesn't add up to 100%. I'll get a little bit into the demographics as well. So more women than men are impacted by forced labor and sex trafficking. So there's approximately 9.2 million females and 6.8 million males that are subject to trafficking globally. And within the sex trafficking space, more than 95% of sex trafficking victims are women and girls. So when we're also looking at labor trafficking, we also see a large spike in, in females in this industry as well. Um, and a lot of this comes from the fact that a quarter of the individuals exploited in labor are in the field of domestic work, and domestic work are f- predominantly female. And that is also just to note that many domestic workers they are exploited for labor, but at the same time, there's multiple victimizations and they're subject to um, sexual victimization as well. Children represent around 20% of labor trafficking victims and 21% of sex trafficking victims. We also look at prevalence in terms of geographical regions. So remember, these are prevalence, not necessarily rates. So um, we're looking at the Asia Pacific region and largely because it has the highest population numbers, they account for the largest number of trafficking victims. They represent around 62% of the global total, which is around 15.4 million. This is followed by Africa, which is around 5.7 million, 
and then Europe and Central Asia. The Americas account for around 1.2 million, which is around 5% of all victims. I was going to ask, too, about the overlap between labor and and sex trafficking, so I'm glad you touched on that a little bit. What's really interesting, I think, is that, you know, in the U.S. right now, especially, I think, in criminal justice circles, we're talking more and more about sex trafficking. And, you know, I feel like this conversation has been going on a lot longer in other countries and and regions. And to hear that, you know, the, the trafficking issue in the U.S., comprises such a small amount of prevalence rates is really fascinating. In recent years, there has been a more of an effort to coordinate um, learning and exchange around international work and domestic work. But a lot of times we do see work that's very much separate. So a lot of this comes from funding streams as well. Like a lot of the prevalence work now is funded by like the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice. And then we also have the State Department, which funds um, millions of dollars a year, but they'll do their own prevalence studies. Then there's a global level studies. And so there's a lot of, there's been a lot of effort to um, have more of information exchange, especially around like methods, but there's still very much kind of a disconnect there. So sort of going off of that too, um, can you talk about some of the really common misconceptions regarding trafficking? Sure. Be happy to. So one of the most common misconceptions is that trafficking requires movement across borders. However, this is really not the case. The main definition that we're using is the United Nations Protocol to Prevent, Suppress, and Punish Trafficking, which is more commonly known as the Palermo Protocol. So it's the world's primary legal instrument to combat trafficking. We also have the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, but the protocol was adopted by the UN in November 2000, so we're going back 20 years. And it defines human trafficking as the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of persons by means of threat or use of force, coercion, or deception to achieve the consent of a person having control over another person for the purpose of exploitation. So according to this definition, it includes sexual exploitation, forced labor, domestic servitude, any form of slavery, removal of organs, but in no way does it require movement. Like at the heart of this definition is really that one person has control over another person for the purposes of exploitation. And one way we do think about trafficking is in three distinct elements. We think about the act, which is really the recruitment. It can be transportation, the transfer or harboring of a person, so how the person got there. The means, so whether or not they were threatened to either engage in commercial sex or they were threatened to um, take an exploitative job, uh, they were abducted, fraud, deception, all those different uh, kind of abuse of power of a position of a person in a position of vulnerability. And then the last piece is the purpose. So that's really the purpose of exploitation. So at minimum, that includes exploitation of the prostitution of others or other forms of sexual exploitation or forced labor. It's also important to point out here that the definition of child trafficking differs from that of adults. So when you're referring to children, the element of means does not apply. So the means stage is not required because it doesn't say that doesn't necessarily occur for victims, but the international definition and the U.S. definition recognizes that a child cannot give informed consent to his or her own exploitation. So that's why when we say all children who are, say, in child sex tourism or who are or prostituted, they are all considered victims of trafficking. Versus an adult where you'd have to say, if they entered their own free will, they can exit freely. They wouldn't necessarily be a trafficking victim. One other common misconception is that there must be elements of physical restraint, physical force, or bondage when identifying a trafficking situation. As I mentioned, the definition doesn't require physical harm or force. And 
a significant portion of the time, it's really psychological means of control, such as threats or abuse of the legal process. And this is something that has proved challenging, especially when it comes to prosecuting cases, because it really is a, a, a mindset or a psychological um, way of controlling individuals. Um, another common misconception is that individuals being trafficked always want to get out and will self-identify. We have to remember that every trafficking situation is complicated and unique. They'll sometimes individuals will sometimes stay in dangerous or exploitative conditions because it is the best survival mechanism, economic opportunity, or logical option for them. They also may be unaware of their legal and civil rights. So oftentimes victims have lack of trust, they self-blame, had bad previous experience with service providers and law enforcement, so they really may choose not to disclose. We also in the field, and I'm sure you see this in other areas of criminal justice, there's this idea of savior mentality. There are these things that people were doing were called like rescue and raids, where they would just go into um, brothels and they were just removing everybody. And this was extremely harmful and traumatic um, for the, the women involved, the women in the brothels, especially obviously those who wanted to be there willingly, who were able to leave and come and go freely. It was their means of livelihood. It was a way of providing for their family. Um, also just being kind of bombarded by law enforcement without any warning, without uh, any any kind of idea what was going on, um, being separated from their families for a while, fear of deportation. We've, we've moved away from these practices, but really understanding that um, it's a very complex crime and that not necessarily people who are in these situations, they might really kind of see this as their only, their only livelihoods. I think it's really interesting when you're talking about understanding that some people are there because that's their work and it's consensual. And, you know, I think we're sort of seeing that shift here as well, where there's a push to decriminalize sex work and get away from this notion that, you know, everyone's being forced into it or they're abused and they somehow don't have any autonomy in the situation. I think, you know, it really requires a nuanced perspective on, trafficking, sex work, and, and all of that. So it's really interesting to hear that from the international perspective, you know, as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I think that is a, it's, it's a really important point. And I think that a lot of times people are just really focused on how they can help and without really kind of understanding the situation and really kind of adopting it from a, a victim-centered approach. So really moving from making sure that the, the, the victim's in many cases, not a victim, right? So the individual's voice voice is heard. So um, I should say maybe like a, a people-centered approach. <laughs> so one other common misconception is that trafficking victims always come from situations of poverty. So although poverty is highly correlated with trafficking, because it is a factor of vulnerability, it alone is not a single causal factor of human trafficking. So in my experience, trafficking victims have come from a range of income levels, education levels. There really is no clear profile of an individual trafficking victim. That being said, we do know that poverty, gender inequality, all of these things are very much a risk factor for trafficking. And I know earlier I mentioned that sex trafficking is much more common among women and girls. So from the ILO estimates, it was saying that around 98, 99% of sex trafficking victims are women and girls. But when we look at some smaller scale studies that are more geographical specific or sector specific, we see that um, it's kind of debunking some of these these numbers. So um, I'll give you one example. There's a recently funded prevalence study in Karamoja, Uganda, which sought to determine the proportion of children in households who have been sexually exploited for commercial gain. 
And these children are between the ages of 12 and 17, no younger than 12. So although this analysis is still ongoing, the data indicates that the prevalence of commercial sexual exploitation of children, sex trafficking, is gender agnostic. So in other words, there's really no statistically significant difference between the proportion of boys and girls that have experienced sexual exploitation. So really, this does run counter to conventional thinking in the field, as well as a large body of evidence. But it's something that we really do need to look uh, more into. And it is also um, a funding priority for many uh, government funding organizations, private foundations to really better understand the prevalence of sex trafficking among men and boys, as well as risk factors uh, around the exploitation. Thank you. Um, you know, so this next question, you've already touched on a little, it's around uh, demographics of those that have been trafficked, um, but and, and the demographics of those that have trafficked others. And I'm wondering uh, if there's any way to link this to this last misconception that you were talking about. You talked about how um, it seems to be uh, gender agnostic. Do you know if there's any literature on international trafficking of trans and non-binary people? It's funny that you say that because actually um, the U.S. Department of State just issued a request for funding priorities looking at LGBTQI plus as a, really a cross-cutting issue in this in this sector. So one of the priorities I know for international work is really looking at this. Um, but there has been more studies done. I would say a lot of it, and this is a bias, I say this is as maybe kind of a bias, um, but a lot of work has been done really looking at um, sexual exploitation in Brazil among LGBTQI plus, but really looking at as in, in sex work um, because it is a legalized profession there. So it's, it's a different kind of way to frame it in that situation, but in areas like Salvador, Brazil, where they have a very high prop, uh, population of a transgender, um, there has been work done on this. But it really is something that has become a, a much bigger priority in recent years um, for the field. It's good to know. So um, you, you did talk a little bit about demographics of those who have uh, been trafficked. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk some about the demographics of those that traffic others? Sure. So yeah, I know when a lot of people think of trafficking, they think of traffickers as criminal kind of enterprises or very highly organized um, criminal syndicates, which in a lot of ways it can be. In a lot of situations it is um, in some regions more than others, but a lot of it is much smaller kind of mom and pop operations, I would say. You're not necessarily seeing these like um, large criminal organized activities. It really is um, more happening kind of at the village level. So a lot of times it's, uh, you'll say that there's, we have traffickers, we also have recruiters. So a lot of the times the recruiter plays a key role in identifying um, individuals to say, um, move to uh, move to an urban center. So like in Haiti, for example, there'll be a lot of times people will go out to the rural areas and they'll say to parents, I want your child, why don't you um, pay X amount of money for your child to come to Port-au-Prince live there and get a better education. But really that child is not getting a better education. They're being trafficked for a variety of reasons. I mean, it could be sex trafficking, labor trafficking. You also see um, it with a lot of adoption is there as well. Um, but really is a lot of times more of this kind of mom and pop organization um, type, type experience. We also see, and I'm sure you're Guests spoke about this last week when it comes to sex trafficking. A lot of it is related to grooming and having um, an individual who you come to know and trust. So a lot of times those individuals are the 
maybe they start as like the, the boyfriend of a, of a trafficking victim and then they gradually um, groom the individual to trust them and then they end up exploiting them. So that's another situation. What we also see a lot too, especially in sex trafficking, is where former victims who end up kind of aging out of the system and becoming like a madame of the, of the brothel or being involved in the trafficking piece somehow. There's an interesting study actually published by UNODC, sorry, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, who do a lot of work on this. They looked at 53 court cases from over a 15-year period, and they were looking at uh, 15 countries, so across Europe, Asia, Africa, South America. And they looked at cases that specifically included a female defendant that was also a victim of trafficking. So the study found that women and girls who are often themselves victims of trafficking are then sexually exploited by criminal gangs, other other traffickers, and they're being prosecuted and convicted for human trafficking-related crimes. So we've seen that this percentage of female perpetrators of trafficking who are at the same time victims of this crime is, is steadily increasing, especially when you look at it compared to female offenders in other situations. So these victims, we're seeing this because a lot of times these victims often have no alternative to really kind of obey it, but obey an order. So some hope to limit their own exploitation or escape poverty by playing a role in the criminal process. Yet at the same time, the traffickers use these women and girls as a shield to protect themselves from being punished for their crimes. So really we're seeing this kind of double exploitation and victimization of women and girls in these cases. And it's something that's being noticed more and more in these cases as time goes on. That's really interesting to hear. I think that something we talk a lot about on this podcast with sex crimes is that quote unquote victim to offender pathway or that cycle of abuse that that continues from one person to another. So it's really sort of fascinating to hear it from that perspective as well. And as somebody who's just really interested in female perpetrators of sexual harm, that's very interesting to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would also say we we like one of the biggest risk factors I think for I would say for both victimization and perpetration it's poverty and also really look especially with sex trafficking and forced marriage is gender inequality. So when we look at countries where there's high levels of gender inequality, there is a much greater risk for these crimes. So one of the studies that you mentioned in my bio that I did was looking at the trafficking of Burmese women from Burma to China, and this is really looking at rural areas of Burma. So um, what was happening was because of the one-child policy in China, there's an excess number of men in, in, in China who cannot find a, a spouse uh, or be married off. So they're offering these families, these poor families in Burma, they're actually specifically looking at um, women who are more of the rural ethnic minorities in Burma, but they're offering them a bride price, and then they're being trafficked to China largely for for marriage, but also for forced childbearing. So what we also see here is that once these women have a child, they're also kind of discarded and forgot about, and they're like almost like kicked out of the family. So really is there's like that gender element as well. But in this, in this study that I did, we also saw that um, these families, it was so desperate. They were so desperate to have food on their table to have... Um, to be able to, it was really the difference between life and death sometimes for other family members when it came to marrying off their daughters. So they would marry off their daughters, um, not really knowing kind of what was expected, but then like all communication was lost. We also saw in some situations where because of the, the 
way that the just the dire poverty that women would almost they would their daughter would be sold off and they would make this money and then they would almost become a recruiter in their own right so they would start to facilitate this process because the poverty is just so bad that it was a way that they could they could make money i'm i'm wondering too i know this is sort of a tangent but um is this a study you did where where you talked to people directly involved or was this yeah so how was that experience maybe you can talk about that a little bit Sure. So I, I should say, I apologize. I should say I, I didn't talk directly involved because I don't speak like Kachin or an ethnic minority language, <laughs> but we did train individuals to conduct the interviews and then I analyzed all the data. Um, it's it's hard. I mean, I, there's a lot of secondary trauma with it, as I'm sure you're aware with working in this field, um, a sense of hopelessness. But a lot of these women, just the things that they go through are really un- unmanageable. Like, a lot of these women were passed around, literally. They would be trafficked to one family. They'd have the baby. They would be sold to another family to have another child. They, With these laws as well, when these women have children, they're also they're considered stateless. So their children have no, um, no kind of identity documents. There's no way for them to go home. They're just in a very vulnerable situation. And on the flip side, there are women who do – there were women – this is – much rarer of a case, but they did actually end up in fulfilling marriages. But at the same time, the way that government policies work and this, the discrimination and the way that women have to operate living as a foreigner in China, they were never even able to get citizenship or legalize their marriage. So they really had no rights to their children, even if something were to happen down the road. Those children are not effectively theirs in the eyes of the government. They were the children of their their spouses. So we saw that a lot as well. We also saw because of gender inequality, like a lot of times families would talk about, oh, we really wanted to send my oldest son to school, but we couldn't afford it. So it was time for our daughter to be married. So it was a way for families to what they see as advancing themselves by having an individual, typically a male, become more educated, possibly secure a higher job at the ben- at the at the price of their their daughters. That's like unimaginable levels of trauma. I think almost a, the I can't yeah. imagine. It's something that doesn't even enter the domestic conversation, right? Like yeah. the, the forced um, yeah. childbearing stuff, which is a, I mean, I would consider that a sex crime. In this study, we looked a lot about autonomy around childbirth and childbearing. These women really had no rights around kind of their medical care, decisions around childbirth. Um, a lot of times they said that, oh, when I was pregnant, that I was treated much better. Then once I had the baby, I was again backed into a situation where I was abused. And a lot of these women also, they were brought over for the purposes of forced marriage and childbearing, but they ended up living as domestic servants. And you also have to wonder, like, how much potential sexual abuse are people experiencing in their domestic servitude situations, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I can't imagine that that, that doesn't happen. So mm-hmm. I think that's important to keep in mind, perhaps, as well. And one other thing that did show from this study and a lot of other studies and work I've done is prior victimization. I'm sure that a lot of people could guess this is a this is not a big surprise to people, but A lot of these women were in situations of domestic violence or they were in a family where they were grew up with an abusive father. Um, A lot of prior victimization as well. That makes a lot of sense. 
So Casey, can you talk a little bit about whether there is an overlap between labor and sex trafficking? And if so, um, can you talk about what that overlap is? So recent research has shown that there is a substantial overlap between sex and labor trafficking in particular spaces. So one of which I mentioned was domestic service. So a lot of women are brought over for domestic work and they end up either being um, exploited for commercial sex by their by the head of the household, be it male or female. They are also victimized by household members as well. So they may be a victim of sexual abuse within the household. So there's kind of two pieces there. There's a piece of more, you might call it domestic violence because it's occurring within their household. And then there's a piece where they are sold for, um, there's a profit that's being generated. So there's there's overlap in that situation. We also see, um, for example, and I mentioned some of the work around in Ghana around Lake Volta. So in Lake Volta, a lot of children are trafficked for labor in the, the fishing industry. So they're trafficked there because um, they're very small and they can, um, unlike adults, they can fit in the fishing nets and go um, underneath the boat and untangle nets. And they're they're well suited for this well suited for this work where adults couldn't do it. So they're being trafficked onto the lake to do this work. They also this is a little bit of a sidebar, but none of them can swim. So these children are being exploited in a way where they are putting their lives at risk in, in so many ways where they. They really don't have kind of those skills. But one thing that a recent study that I worked on as well found was that within this space, a lot of these children who are trafficked to the lake are boys. But then there's also young girls who are trafficked to the households of the the fishing um, fishermen. Like so the the individuals who own the fishing boats or who are really kind of monopolizing that industry. So they're ended up they end up working in in those households and are again, they're exploited for for sex, but also forced to work do household chores, run back and forth, and just run errands for the family. So there's there's overlap there as well. But I would also like to encourage us to discuss about the overlap between like sexual violence and labor trafficking as well, because we see high rates of sexual violence when we're looking at like occupational health, or we're looking at like labor trafficking from an occupational health perspective. So a lot of the work I did, including in my thesis, was looking at the health impact of labor rights violations among migrant workers in Kuala Lumpur, which often amounted to the level of labor trafficking. But within those situations themselves, women in particular were a lot more likely to report that they were victims of like sexual abuse within, and, and physical abuse as well within the, um, within the workplace. So it might not rise to a level of, there might not be a profit being generated, but there's a lot of uh, victimization in that sense that's going on as well. Yeah. It's not surprising at all. Yeah. It's disturbing. It's horrifying, but it's not surprising. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit. I know we're talking about overlap. And, and so I think it's important to talk about other criminal acts that sort of fall under the category of human trafficking. And I think one we're interested in hearing about is sex tourism. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what this is and, you know, what maybe the the data and research tells us about it. Sure. So um, it's interesting because sex tourism, it's a lot of times it's seen as like a separate entity, right? And then maybe that's why you also framed it as this. It really is kind of it's there's a lot of work being done on sex tourism that's separate from sex trafficking, but there's also significant overlap. So I mentioned earlier that 
not all sex tourism is trafficking, right? So when we think about the definition of sex traf- sex tourism, is it's someone's traveling from one place in, or another for the purpose of purchasing sex. Um, if an uh, individual is selling sex um, at their own free will, they're not being forced, that doesn't constitute a sex trafficking situation. One misconception we also have around uh, sex tourism is that it's something that like typically white men from Europe or America or Canada are going over to another country to purchase. What I've seen in my work is a lot of the time there is a sex trafficking within the tourism industry that's ongoing internally. So individuals are traveling from one region of, say, Cambodia to another to purchase sex. They go on these vacations. Um, they even have like vacation packages where they're able to purchase sex. Um, and sadly, a lot of times with very young girls to for the purposes of um, for exploiting them. And But what really is surprising is there's a lot of also pushback from some organizations working in this field that there's this real big focus on these white men that come in and they exploit these children and there's not enough effort being paid to the trafficking that incurs within the sex tourism industry within their country and among individuals of their country as well. So it's kind of built up as this real kind of international phenomenon or a lot of times it, it, it isn't. It really is something that happens internally. One thing I also wanted to mention was with sex tourism, a lot of times traffickers can make more money off younger girls. So it's people will pay a higher price to be with a younger girl. So there's this driving factor where age, they want to um, make more money. So they're looking for younger and younger girls to exploit. We also see this with forced marriage as well. So in the study that I mentioned earlier, where we were looking at forced marriage among Burmese women, there was a much higher bride price for women who were younger. Because the idea is not only that they are younger, more youthful, but also that they're able to produce children for a longer period. So there's also this kind of supply and demand that is um, really kind of changing the amount of profit someone can make off this crime. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can clarify something that you said was really interesting. So you talked about how um, a lot of the focus tends to be on these white guys coming from, you know, America or from Europe um, in, in terms of sex tourism. Um, and then you talked a little bit about how there's organizations that are sort of pushing that narrative. Can you do you have any idea why people push that narrative? Do you think mm-hmm. it's just because that's their perception of it and like a genuine perception? Or do you think there's other reasons why that narrative is being pushed forward? And are the people pushing it folks from Europe and North America? Or is it the organizations that are working in the areas uh, or the countries you talked about? Sure. So let me clarify. I I apologize if I misspoke, but I what I meant was that a lot of the local organizations on the ground, like specifically, say, in Thailand, like Thai organizations or organizations that are really embedded in the communities, they are the ones who are saying that we need more focus on sex trafficking for sex trafficking within the tourism industry among our our citizens. So we need to look more at people coming from urban centers to rural areas. But I think that kind of flipping your question, I think that a lot of the focus on that kind of white man, it, it, it is born out of the idea that like 
that kind of like, I think like helplessness savior notion, again, I'll go back to that, where it's like someone in power, someone who um, they come and they, they kind of take from that situation and then they leave in the simplest terms. I think that's kind of where we see that coming from. And it's also, I think people see it as an, an easier issue to address in many ways. So it's something where it's like, okay, we can put flyers up in hotels and we can have uh, hotels sign code of conducts and we can have people do X, Y, and Z. We can really tailor it to this kind of specific market where when we're really addressing at it and especially coming at it from when a lot of people doing this work initially too were foreign organizations, US-based, European-based, we're focusing on, say, the people who come from the countries where we come from. We're not putting blame on individuals within the country. But really, at the same time, the individuals doing this work are saying that's where we do need this money as well. We need to work on this because a lot of people are being exploited at the hand of, say, I mean, our, the citizens of our country as well. Uh, Casey, can you talk a bit about uh, legal responses to trafficking? Like, How does the international community address this issue? So as I mentioned earlier, in 20 years ago, 22 years ago now, the UN passed the Palermo Protocol, which really is the defining piece of um, international law on human trafficking. So this has largely served as the model or prototype for um, other countries when developing their law. So we set this out as uh, really a model where other countries should look at when they're when they're forming their legislation. So the, the right around the time the Palermo Protocol came out, the TVPA came out as well, which again is the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in the United States, and it was almost kind of this tug of war between the two. So it's it's a little kind of it gets a little complicated there, but the U.S. government every year they put out a trafficking in persons report. And they rank countries based on their efforts to combat human trafficking and from year to year. So you can be ranked on four different tiers based on their compliance with trafficking law and their efforts to to combat human trafficking across the three P's, which we call prevention, prosecution, and protection. So it is something that it's not like a, it's really based on like progressive improvement. So it's based on the prior year, but it is the only Um, report that has sanctions linked to it. So one thing that this does is we look at whether or not countries are complying. And if they're not, if they're really doing the bare minimum to comply, they are ranked as we call tier three. And with tier three, um, organizations can no longer receive foreign aid from the U.S. government. They can only receive a humanitarian aid. So they receive no longer any more kind of developmental aid, things like that. So it really has kind of teeth. So that has been a a real kind of tool that has been used to help countries um, improve across all three P's, as I mentioned. So prevention, prosecution and protection, but really also on their laws as well. So there are like several different types of interventions that we really see in the in the legislation space. So the legal responses. So um, as I alluded to, there's really like the creation or updating of laws to strengthen legal frameworks regarding trafficking. So this also involves like updating like national plans of action to meet the standards set by interventional international conventions such as Palermo. We see that we also see legal services. So this involves like legal assistance during court proceedings, assistance with complaints, accessing legal services, as well as visas and employment authorization because a lot of times victims are migrants. We also see programs that are working to help uh, workers file rights-based complaints anonymously, things like that. Um, 
we also see training programs. So a lot of um, in the international response has been around training programs. So to educate primarily like law enforcement, prosecutors and social protection agents on how to identify trafficking, how to respond to it. One challenge, I guess, in this in this space as well, is we really don't know exactly what works. And a lot of the work that we have been doing is trying to figure out what does work. So recently, not only have we placed a greater emphasis on prevalence, but also trying to implement RCTs, randomized control trials in these spaces. So really trying to see kind of what of these what interventions are leading to a reduction in trafficking and better outcomes for victims. This is not limited to the prosecution space, but it is one area. And I bring this up because a lot of times we do uh, these capacity building trainings, these um, awareness events, and we really get stuck in the, okay, we're going to measure knowledge acquisition after the training. Okay, I'm really glad that your knowledge increased, but like, what the heck are you going to do with it, right? Like, does it going to translate to behavior change? So like, we pat you on the back, you got a 98% end line, like, okay, what does that mean? So really trying to figure out some, some do some more um, rigorous research around this, some more longitudinal studies to really look at how these, uh, these efforts are translating into change. And this is something that really needs to be done in the prosecution space. Another difficult piece, I guess, when it comes to legislation efforts is when we see a legal response, we're not necessarily going to see uh, improved legal response, a huge reduction in trafficking, right? So like if there is increased capacity to prosecute a case, um, is this going to mean that, that that it's going to even have an impact on trafficking reduction, which is kind of what is also guiding some funding. So we always talk about programming. We want to say, okay, is your programming going to have a reduction in trafficking? Okay. A lot of these efforts in the, like a legal response aren't necessarily going to do that. So we really have shifted kind of our framework and our, our mindset to think about other outcomes in the space as well. So looking at um, some interventions that measure outcomes other than kind of trafficking prevalence, but um, other aspects of the, the legal process as well. But there has been a lot of work done, again, on training for law enforcement, service providers, things like that. But we don't really know kind of if these are, are working yet. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really reflective, too, of, of looking at sex crimes in the U.S. Like we can't there's no link between prosecution and reduction in sexual harm, right? Like we're not, if you're not addressing the root causes or the ideology of why this is happening in the first place, why would we see a reduction? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think one thing, and this is on a little bit of a tangent, but one thing that the field is also focusing on very much is intervention development research. So instead of just saying like, I'm going to propose to do awareness raising services for victims, and then some training for law enforcement on identification. We've been doing this for decades where we say we're going to do these things without really knowing if it works. So it's almost like we're, you think of like back to, you harken back to like public health where you look at a, say, a randomized control trial. You say something works first in a space where there's like complete controls. You're not looking at any other factors, outside factors. When you're looking at something as complex as trafficking, you can't just say that it's going to work without really understanding the context and the, all the other mitigating factors. So what the field has really been trying to do is fund more of kind of this, this phased work. So really focusing on that research piece first, maybe proposing we're going to do these interventions, but understanding that they might change based on kind of the research that we're doing, the findings that we have. So trying to offer people and, and implementers more of that space to do that. 
So it has been like a huge focus um, because for years we funded, I guess we could say like awareness raising campaigns. Okay. We spent millions of dollars on these awareness raising campaigns. We don't really know if they work. There's kind of limited evidence. We've also seen, for example, that awareness raising campaigns for say like migrants before they're, they're traveling abroad for work. They're actually, and sometimes they can be detrimental because they give migrants this kind of false confidence that, okay, I know all this. I I have this knowledge. I can travel now without being trafficked. This doesn't consider all of the other challenges that are in place, like immigration challenges, just pervasive um, structural inequalities, everything that also comes into play. So really in the legal intervention and the legal response, we really need to work on this, but we also need to work on it in other areas as well. Yeah. That's, like I said earlier, like really, I think, reflective of domestic issues with addressing sex crimes as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm wondering if you can talk just a little bit about the difficulties in prosecuting trafficking cases. This is a perennial challenge in the field. So like, despite its prevalence in all regions of the world, we have very low levels of prosecutions and convictions. So data from the United Nations Office on Drugs on Crime showed that in 2018, Almost 50,000 human trafficking victims were detected in 135 countries, while only well, 88 countries reported just over 3,500 convictions. Wow. So there's a very low wow. level of convictions, and there's a ton of reasons why this is happening, mm-hmm. um, one of which is really lack of credible witness and training or education, which results in really prosecutors avoiding prosecuting the cases because they're not confident in the success of the conviction. So. There's no really, it is a new field. I I say new, I know we've been working on it for like 20 years, more than that, but there really is no um, kind of precedent for cases. So prosecutors are oftentimes very hesitant to take on these cases because there's no precedent for them to to prosecute. We also, um, witnesses, uh, criminal criminal justice systems, as you all know, rely heavily on verbal or written statements from victims when investigating and prosecuting cases of human trafficking in particular. And this is largely due to the clandestine nature of the crime. So where it's really the evidence of victims provides the bulk of evidence against traffickers. We see that victims are often reluctant to testify. So testimonies can be difficult to get, and they often lack sufficient credibility needed for a court ruling. So we really are encouraging legal assistance, more legal assistance for victims so they can help increase testimonies. So when I say legal assistance, I mean, this can be something as simple as having interpreters present so that they're able to explain the rights or their risks of participating in the court process. So these might be things that maybe, and I'm not as familiar with the U.S. system, that we take for granted, but internationally, a lot of times these things are not offered. So that's a, that's a, a large problem as well. We also know that um, many times, uh, especially obviously in cases that are international trafficking cases, witnesses can be threatened with deportation, which could result in them being re-trafficked. Um, so that happens a lot. They're also, um, a lot of times, as I mentioned earlier too, victims are related to traffickers. So sometimes they're familial members who traffic them or they're a, a quote unquote boyfriend. So they feel a sense of loyalty towards them. So, so that's an issue as well. Which is all really interesting, too, because that's what we see in, with sex crimes, right? So people are more likely to be abused or harmed by someone they know. And that bringing a criminal case against your family member is not 
easy. It's not an easy decision to make. And it could run the risk of, you know, destroying your family. And so a lot of people don't don't come forward with that. Yeah. When you talk about destroying their family, one other element that really comes into play here for trafficking is that many victims are terrified that the traffickers will harm their them, not only them, but also their families. There's also a general lack of trust among authorities that are questioning them. So they fear for their family, not only being maybe exploited for money, being abused, even worse, murdered or, or harmed, but they also also fear that they're going to be, say, deported. So there's a lot of and I mentioned this earlier with the psychological piece, even if that's not necessarily a risk, there's a lot of indoctrination from the trafficker. I'm going to harm your family. I'm going to do this. I have I have networks that even if I'm behind bars, I can still um, access them. I can still exploit them. So that is something that also happens as well. Um, another challenge is really, and this is linked to the 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 legal response, is there's a lot of uh, the capacity to collect sufficient and admissible evidence is really lacking. So there are certain skills that are needed to do this, but a lot of times police officers, investigators just don't have this. And I'd also be curious to hear from you all about, because um, I'm not familiar in kind of the U.S., even outside of trafficking, but when we see trafficking crimes, especially internationally, the length of the trial can be exceedingly long. So we know in the U.S. to prosecute a trafficking case, it takes on average one to two years or more. But in other countries, it's much, much longer. So many victims, they're wanting to move on with their lives. They become frustrated. They just kind of give up. Um, and also one other issue is um, prosecutors, law enforcement being able to maintain contact with these individuals because they're they're moving a lot, right? So a lot of times they're victimized in a place where they don't reside. So they move back home, be that to another part of the country or to a, another country altogether. And that becomes extremely difficult to to engage with them over that time. Yeah. I mean, I think, listen, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. We see long um, preparation time. So it's a long time to get to trial and then trials can be long, but nothing like years. I think that's very rare. I think what we see is, you know, months of prep and then trials lasting weeks. Um, but I, I can't, I can't think of any statistics or numbers I've heard of where it would take years. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable and not surprising then that not many of these cases, you know, end with successful prosecution, because like you said, people do want to move on with their lives. And it is, I would imagine, difficult to maintain contact mm -hmm. over that, yeah. that long of a period of time. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would add here in the States, most cases never get to a trial mm -hmm. because they're mostly pled out. Right. Uh, and so even if somebody who has been victimized does cooperate and goes through the whole process while the case is being investigated, it may just end in, you know, the person who authored the harm taking a plea, mm -hmm. uh, which leaves the person who experienced the harm with no say or yeah. role in the process. Mm -hmm. No boy. Yeah. And that's another thing as well in trafficking. Like when you look at like numbers of victims identified versus cases prosecuted versus cases predicted, you see a precipitous drop as you kind of mm. you travel down the yep. the various mm -hmm. the various elements. One other thing as well, especially in like the labor trafficking case, as I mentioned earlier, is a lot of victims don't self-identify. Um, they may 
kind of want to, but they're not really ready to leave the situation because they, they need that money. So in my experience, in my research, a lot of individuals, when they, when they kind of report a report that they've been exploited or they want to come forward as a victim, they often say like, I don't want to try. I don't care about like convicting the trafficker. I just want my money. So a lot of individuals will accept, um, this is particular to labor trafficking, they'll accept, like you said, like a plea deal or just a private kind of between maybe like an, a nonprofit organization working on this issue and an employer, like an agreement for some type of like restitution or some type of paying back wages. So a lot of times it amounts to like paying back wages versus going through the entire process. Yeah. Right. Right. That's interesting because that sounds much more like restorative justice or <laughs> than it does anything else, you know? Um. But uh, I, I feel like we talked so much about so many important things and I, you know, we really appreciate you being here with us. And I think another important aspect of all of this is not only increasing public awareness, but um, how we can support victims. And are there any important organizations that you would like to highlight in particular? Sure. Um, so. I guess when I think about raising awareness, I think of it in two ways. So I think of like raising public, like generalized awareness about the crime. Then we also have raising awareness among people who are potential victims of the crime. So um, when you're talking about like raising awareness of the crime, I think that there are several organizations that are doing really great work. So we see organizations like uh, Walk Free and um, organizations that are putting out kind of these, like I mentioned, some of these global statistics, statistics around the crime that really capture people's attention around the issue. I say that with a, a grain of salt as well, because we also need to be cautious around these statistics. Um, because, but they are very good in terms of like raising awareness in terms of getting people's attention on the issue versus um, some organizations that are kind of doing really great work. I'd also point to some organizations that are small so we have a lot of organizations that are doing the best work in this field that are really the grassroots organizations that have been doing this for decades, um, which is also a challenge because a lot of this funding that is coming through the pipeline is coming from government, it's coming from larger foundations, it's coming from areas where there might be a higher burden of reporting, the application process might be more difficult. So there's been a real struggle to kind of keep funding these organizations. So when you're looking to support organizations, you're looking to kind of engage in this issue, I would also encourage you to kind of reach out and try to find some of these kind of smaller partner NGOs as well. So partner organizations. So for example, when I was working in Thailand, I worked with the Chin Women's Association of Thailand. It's a wonderful organization that has been working for more than 30 years on this issue. It's a great organization to support. There's also when uh, in another place close to my heart in, in Malaysia was is uh, this organization called Tenaganita. They're doing amazing work around uh, uh, work with migrants who have been trafficked in Malaysia. Um, it's actually very interesting because the founder of this organization, she um, unfortunately she passed away, but she was actually appeared in court more times than anyone in the history of Malaysia because she spoke out against the government for the high rates of actually HIV among migrants in detention centers. And really that's kind of where her work was born out of, really fighting for the rights of, of these migrants. But it also shows you that a lot of these organizations, especially the ones that are doing this work on the ground, they're also really fighting a hard fight. So um, like at Tenaganita, like this woman who, again, she was jailed for like, I think more than seven years as well for her work. Um, 
I've also been like kind of have faced like one report that I did with the Hopkins and in Thailand, we were uh, threatened by the government with the kind of a defamation suit. There's all these different things that kind of go into play here, but I would really encourage you to kind of look for some of these smaller organizations that are doing the work as well. But um, there are also some really great U.S. organizations, some larger organizations as well. So we have organizations I mentioned earlier, like the Polaris Project. They're doing wonderful work on the U.S. side. We have um, the Freedom Fund, which is an organization based in the U.K. that's been doing really trying to combine research and uh, research and programming. So doing a lot of prevalence work first and then funding interventions. So they're another um, organization to point to as well. I didn't know that you were almost sued for defamation. <laughs> another another tidbit of information I learned here. Yeah, it's 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 sadly it's not that uncommon in this space too. So I think that like you just kind of have to be. I mean, you're dealing with government, right? And a lot of times you are dealing with like organized crime, so it's something that something that does happen. But I think like raising awareness too. I think around like the piece. I think that there has been a ton of work around to raise awareness on this piece, especially around, I guess I would say around the UN, United Nations Sustainable Development Girls, or the SDGs. So um, if you look at target 8.7, so um, which calls for effective measures to end forced labor, modern slavery, and trafficking, as well as child labor in all its forms. So it, this has really been kind of an impetus for governments, including the U.S., to really look and, and engage on this issue. So um this is really looking to, so it's around data collection as well as just funding some of these initiatives. So it's, there's all different targets under it, but the, the main goal is to eliminate it in all its forms by 2030. So from the, the international space, this has really pulled together a lot of different organizations, large and small, who are committed to this issue and really gained kind of helped uh, gain political will on the government side as well. But there's been a lot more of work done around that to help raise awareness as well. Thank you so much for that. I feel like I've learned so much about this topic and things about you, Case. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) pretty amazing. So, yeah, thank you for being here with us today. We appreciate it so much. Of course, it's my pleasure. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Sive Sanchez. Thank you for listening to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes podcast, a part of Article 3 Podcasting Network. Beyond Fear is written and hosted by Alexa Sardina and Alyssa Ackerman. All episodes are produced and edited by Christopher Antico. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and answer any questions that you might have about the topics we've covered or questions about us. You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast.